This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review. It's, <laughs> we're not going to say what day it is. Technically, <laughs> this is the Monday episode. We're recording right. this on a Tuesday night because life got in the way and we decided that we were not going to skip and we're just going to record whenever we can. So I don't know. What did you call it, Daphne? We were going to Netflix this by just like releasing <laughs> That's a right. bunch of episodes. <laughs> That's right. And then this you can is binge. season uh, whatever of the board review podcast. Yeah. And so we're going to, we're going to try, we're not going to try, we're going to release like three episodes on Wednesday morning, but you know what? Um, listen, we're not going to skip and make excuses. We're just going to do the best we can. Daphna, you're on service. I'm on call yeah. tomorrow. Life is tough and we're committed to this project. So we're doing That's it. That's right. Uh, doing the best we can. <laughs> yeah. No, we're doing a heck of a job. Listen, um, very excited about the po topic. You picked that topic this week. We're mm -hmm. talking about surfactant. There's one thing I did want to say though. Um, we do have to disclose um, that mm -hmm. Daphna and I are both uh, sponsored through the uh, Incubator podcast by Casey, who uh, is a pharmaceutical company that produces surfactant. Uh, we've done some consulting job for them. So it's definitely something that we need to disclose. I can pretty much guarantee you that none of the things we're going to say uh, this week on the podcast is uh, going to be controversial. We're going to present to you the evidence. Um, I think the evidence is very interesting. It's pretty straightforward. We don't have any personal takes or anything like that, but I thought it would mm -hmm. be important, right, Daphne, to disclose yeah. that at least uh, for transparency. Yes. Thank you for including yeah. that. Absolutely. So, Well, let's yeah, get let's started. Go. So it's Monday. <laughs> We're talking about the history, and the history of surfactant is something that I really, really love. Um, I'm basically going to walk you through a paper that is called um, the impressive history of surfactant mm -hmm. i have i have it here hold on um i can pull it up it's by halliday and colleagues and um it's a great it's a great article that just goes over the entire history of surfactant development uh it's called the fascinating story of surfactant it's by halliday and colleagues it's published in the journal of pediatrics and child health in 2017 the paper will be on the show notes so the story begins for this particular topic in 1929, when uh, this German-born physiologist named Kurt von Nergard, um, working in Switzerland, basically was doing some animal studies and filled a porcine or porcine lung with an isotonic gum solution to, quote-unquote, eliminate surface tension of the mm. air tissue interfaces. And he's publishing this work. So he knew what he was doing. Listen, I mean, this is so typical, but after expanding the lung with air and liquid, he concludes, and I quote, that a lower surface tension would be useful for the respiratory mechanism. And that mm. surface tension as a force counteracting the first breath of the newly born should be investigated further. Mm. So it's so cool that he actually wrote these words in 1929. And obviously, as, as, we've, as we've come to know through this podcast, not much happens thereafter. Um, and it would take really another 18 years for someone to follow up on this, on this recommendation. And it would be Peter Grunwald, a pathologist working in New York, who 18 years after this was published, repeated these experiments with the lungs of stillborn infants. 
and Grunewald stated that the resistance to aeration is due to surface tension, which counteracts the entrance of air. And he showed that surface active substances reduced the pressure needed for aeration. Um, interestingly enough, Grunewald would then go on to become the mentor slash teacher of none other than Dr. Mary Ellen Avery, mm -hmm. a future giant of the field, which Daphne and I are always <laughs> reminiscing on the fact that we, mm -hmm. we missed her and we wish we could have spoken to mm -hmm. her before she passed, and um, who would become a key individual in the quest for surfactant therapy. So what did Mary Ellen Avery um Actually, my, my residency, my fellowship program director, Dr. Eileen Sosenko, her first paper as a fellow was in the New England with Mary Ellen Avery. I was like, this okay, is like cool. the most like... <laughs> Starstruck. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> so in 1959, Mary Ellen Avery publishes in JAMA uh, a study where she basically took lung tissue from infants of varying birth weights, right? And she measured their surface tension. She took lung extracts from um, actual infants um, and noted a peculiar relationship, uh, and we'll put that graph in the in the presentation this this week, which was that infants dying of hyaline membrane disease or RDS, which is what they used to call it back in the day, had significantly higher surface tension compared to those who died of other causes. Mm. And so she she basically her her involvement and her input in this quest was that she really was able to say like all right rds surface tension that's the link and in her paper she actually concludes and i quote that hyaline membrane disease is associated with absence or late appearance of some substances which in normal subject render the internal surface capable of attaining a low surface tension when log volume is decreased hmm. so you can see we're circling mm -hmm. the prize here and despite this evidence um, not much really uh, happens. There's considerable reluctancy, according to Halliday in that paper, among the community to investigate this issue. Um, and it wouldn't really be until the death of JFK's son, and I'm not going to go into that because that's something that's like beaten over and over as an historical fact, but we all know that JFK's son died of RDS, and there was really nothing available at the time, and, and it was quite striking because to our standards, that baby was quite big. Mm. But after the death of John Kennedy's son, a lot of research and and funds were invested in neonatology research, and, and it really sparked a lot of, lot of research and trials. So the first trials with synthetic surfactants started, started, and the first results were published in 1964 and 1967. And the results were not really promising. So the first, the first the trials were not, not really great. And then I'm going to, the 1972, in Stockholm in Sweden, Goran Inoring, which was an obstetrician, and Bengt Robertson, a pediatric pathologist, and Robertson will come back later in the story, showed that preterm rabbits treated with natural surfactant did not die soon after birth. Um, and so with that uh, evidence, really, this, this led to enthusiasm about the potential of natural surfactant administration. And so the first human trials with surfactant um, were published a few years later in 1980 by a Japanese neonatologist named Tetsuro Fujiwara. And Fujiwara was a, an important figure in the development of surfactant for clinical use. So Fujiwara showed that the administration of what was known at the time as surfactant TA, which is basically a bovine form of surfactant, in 10 infants, right, the mean arterial oxygen tension had increased from about 45 to 210 tor, and the chest radiographs had significantly improves, improved. 
nine of these 10 infants had a, developed a PDA, two died, um, but uh, these infants were big by today's standard with a mean GA of 30 weeks and a mean birth weight of 1500 grams. And so this, this really showed that there's really potential for, um, for surfactant. And so the story of the surfactant that we're using today really takes us to back to Sweden, right? So in Stockholm, Bengt Robertson, which is the person that we just mentioned earlier, with his expertise in in vitro and in vivo testing of surfactant, had then teamed up with a scientist called Tori Kersted. He was a clinical chemist, and he Kersted's interest was in the isolation of phospholipids and proteins. And so together, they produced a porcine surfactant, which uh, they thought could be uh, very valuable in clinical in clinical settings, and they basically named it after themselves. So Kirstead and Robertson created a surfactant, and so they called it CureSurf. Cure for Kirstead, Roe for Robertson, and Surf for surfactant. I thought and, that was really cool. Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> and so the story keeps going that um, this surfactant was unique in that apart from being produced from pig rather than cow lungs, it went through an additional preparation step uh, of liquid gel chromatography, leaving only the polar lipids and surfactant protein B and C with a phospholipid concentration of 80 milligrams per ml. And you'll tell us more, I think, tomorrow about um, the different proteins. Um, and so what's interesting is you can, um, you can read some accounts of, so I'm going to tell you this story because it's such a cool story. Basically they create this thing, right? And there's this physician in Stockholm who hears that they have this surfactant and he has a baby right in the unit and he doesn't know really what to do. He says, maybe surfactant will help us. And so he calls, I think, Tori Kirstead, and he says, hey, I know you've been working on this surfactant thing. We have a baby. If we don't do anything, this kid's going to die. Um, can we just use your surfactant and see what happens? And so they had to prepare it, right? And so Kirstead was, yeah, very basically in, in an interview he gave, he said, yeah, of course, I'd be happy to try. And, and so he, he got to work with Robertson to try to prepare a sample that would be, uh, I don't exactly know the preparation, what needs to be done to be prepared to be used in a baby. But they had to prepare it, basically. And and he talks about the excitement, about like, oh, my God, we're going to try it on a baby. And the excitement making way for anxiety about like, oh, my God, but what if what if something bad happens? Like, And, and the family like blames us for anything bad that happens. But they don't really get a chance to, um, they don't really get a chance to think too much about this. And they just prepare the surfactant and they bring it to this physician and they give it to the baby. And the way they describe it is that the baby was blue. I imagine very hypoxic and within a few minutes, like 20 to 30 minutes, the baby was pink uh, mm. and was doing much better. And, uh. Halliday, and Halliday in this, uh, in this paper says, I also witnessed the treatment with cursor for very preterm twins who had severe RDS and the white creamy mixture literally turned these blue babies pink within minutes. The chest X-ray also dramatically improved within a very short time from a whiteout to almost clear lung fields. And to me, that is something that. If, I mean, today we take this for granted, but yeah. can you imagine if you're a neonatologist back in those days and you're struggling with that disease, it takes away a lot of your patients and then you you stumble upon this magical treatment and you're like, what is this, right? Uh, it is like magic, actually, if I you know. think about it. <laughs> it is like magic today and you look at it's it like- It's still, my... every time I give surfactant, it feels like magic. 
So anyway, so this is phenomenal, right? And so Kirstead and Robertson are super excited, I'm assuming. Mm -hmm. And so they are approaching a Swedish pharmaceutical company to say, hey, we have this product. We should, we should make it. And so they approached this company called Pharmacia, Pharmacia, I guess, to take the drug to market. And the pharmaceutical company says, no, nah, we're not interested. <laughs> they said that the drug's potential was considered too insignificant mm. for this uh, drug giant, an estimated SEK, which I'm not sure what that stands for so right now. I should have looked that up. Anyway, of 200 million a year. So wow. the story then uh, takes a different turn where uh, Robertson is in contact with a doctor in Parma in Italy. Um, who had heard about their difficulties and who was following the development of surfactant. And this doctor then tells him, hey, there's like these two brothers who are starting this small drugs company named Chiesi, and they may be interested. And they basically jumped on the opportunity. And obviously, Chiesi then started manufacturing surfactant and, and, and made tons of money and whatever. Um, but um, the 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 roller coaster of reading these stories of surfactant being given for the first time and then reading that the pharmaceutical company was like we're not interested it's just holy moly um and so th this eventually led then to the to the design and the publication of the first randomized control trial of CureSurf made exclusively in Stockholm by CureSted and not really by drunk company at the time. So the first trials that were published using CureSurf were not really like they, they made that medication themselves. And so they had randomized preterm infants with severe RDS, which meant that they had a mean inspired oxygen of 80%. A mean age of 10 hours uh, to treatment with a single dose of 200 milligram per kilo of CureSurf or treatment with mechanical ventilation alone. And what they found, obviously, was significant reduction in pulmonary air leaks, neonatal mortality and death, or bronchopulmonary dysplasia in treated infants. We're not really going to get too much into this whole discussion about bronchopulmonary dysplasia because it's been well documented that Surfactant, if anything, do not have an independent effect in reducing the incidence of BPD, but may potentially have a an indirect effect in reducing the incidence of BPD because of re the effect that surfactant may have on the initial RDS. And so that by, by, by affecting RDS early on, the effects on BPD later on could be impacted. But technically, if you get a board question that asks you whether surfactant reduces BPD, the answer is no. Mm -hmm. For the first uh, few studies in the 80s and the 90s, mortality fell from 50% in controls to 30% with a single dose treatment, and then to about 10% with multiple doses. Surfactant was the first drug developed solely for the treatment of neonates, which is really mm -hmm. a major mm -hmm. event and, this, uh, and a major breakthrough in neonatal medicine uh, for the past 35 years. Surfactant reduced both neonatal mortality and pulmonary air leaks by about 50%. Its introduction was also, was also associated with a 6% reduction in infant mortality in the USA. So currently, um, so this sort of wraps up a little bit our discussion about the history of surfactant, about the initial trials. I, I felt like we didn't really need to break down the initial trials because you all know that surfactant work <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. and there's much more recent data to look into so but there's i wanted to just mention there's three surfactant preparation that are licensed for use in europe that's called that's baractant bovactant and poractant alpha and in the us we have four 
baractant, calfactant, lucinactant, and poractant alpha. And all but the lucinant, lucinactant are derived from animal lungs, whether that may be bovine or porcine. So um, tomorrow, I think, right, uh, you're talking to us about uh, surfactant a bit in more details, how they function, mm -hmm. and to give you a bit of an outlook as to what we're going to be talking about. So we'll, we'll have a bit more of an understanding of surfactant, thanks to your uh, help tomorrow. On Wednesday, I'm going to talk a little bit about how to administer surfactant, and we're going to talk about um, Insure, we're going to talk about Lisa. Um, and then we also wanted to talk about other forms of surfactant administration, like through a laryngeal or supraglottic airway. We wanted to talk about aerosolized surfactant. We wanted to talk about surfactant for pulmonary hemorrhage. We wanted to talk about surfactant for pneumonia. We wanted to talk about surfactant for um, pulmonary, pulmonary hemorrhage. I said that there's mm -hmm. another pathology that I'm a meconium aspiration. Meconium aspiration. Sorry about that. Yeah. And so we want to have an expert on because it's a lot to cover and we wouldn't have been able to do it in the span of three days. So uh, so we'll be spreading that over uh, Monday through Thursday. Okay, that's all okay. I have to say. I, I thought that was a great review. Yeah, so. this is a great, this is a, I mean. Good topic, yeah. You would think that whenever they figured out surfactant, they would be like, we found gold, right? And the fact that like they were turned down, it's just. Yeah, the, so the, many the, things the, happen that I way, know. right? I know, <laughs> Anyway. Thank you for your right. time, and I'll see you tomorrow. Sounds good. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to nicupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at NICUpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.